Over the last eight years, I've been involved in a number of appointments here at Holy Trinity and elsewhere, and one of the lessons I've taken away from them is this. When reading CVs, it is important to give less weight to what people actually say about themselves and more weight to what they've actually done. That is to say, in other words, actions speak louder than words. It's easy for a person to say they believe in church growth, but the key question is whether a church they've led has actually experienced growth. They may say they believe in delegating leadership, but have they actually done it? They point to qualifications that they have, but actually the question is what ministry have they been involved in? Actions are costly. Words are cheap. Or rather, words need actions to back them up. They need actions in order to stop those words being slightly hollow. And is that truth of kind of words and actions kind of belonging together that came to mind as I looked at the next phrase in the Apostles' Creed that we're looking at this term. If you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, we're spending the next three months going through the words of the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed or statement of faith that goes back to the earliest church. Uh, Two weeks ago, I introduced the creed and explored the idea of what it means to believe in a God who is creator of heaven and earth. And last week, Mike Barton uh, opened up the second section of the creed about the person of Jesus, and he very helpfully showed us what it means to believe in Jesus as Messiah, Christ as Saviour, as the Son of God, and as Lord. But what's interesting about the Apostles' Creed is it doesn't kind of stop there. It doesn't just kind of say that's who he is. It actually goes on from the words describing Jesus to giving an account of what he actually did. It goes on from uh, the words are followed up, if you like, with actions. And what we're going to be doing actually over the next few weeks as a church is considering the actions of Jesus, mainly in the past, but also in the future as well. Uh, And those actions are going to kind of fill out our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. And it's going to be a journey as we kind of move just beyond words about Jesus to considering afresh what he has done and what he will do. And today we're going right back to the beginning of what Jesus did, in one sense at least. We're going to be looking at those two phrases about Jesus. Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now the theological summary for this is the word incarnation. That means God taking flesh. And it's a thing that has occupied uh, theologians for centuries The good news is we're not going to be taking centuries over it today. But I hope we can at least do two things. First of all, I hope we can explore the incarnation as it's described in the New Testament. And we'll use our reading from Matthew chapter 1 as a guide. And secondly, I hope we'll see what it means to believe in the incarnation today. Now, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that I found this a demanding sermon to prepare, both mentally and emotionally. And I suspect it might be the same for us to listen and engage with today. But I believe there are some precious, holy, and possibly neglected truths behind these words from the Apostles' Creed. And I pray that God will use my words, which are not the last words on this subject, but I hope are faithful to God's word, to speak to our head, our heart, 
and our hands today. So please take your Bibles and open them with me to Matthew chapter 1. It's on page uh, 965 of our Bibles. Matthew chapter 1. We're looking at verses 18 to 25. There's a batting order that shows where we're going and with place to write notes. Because I guess the first question to ask is, where did these words from the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, where did they come from? Were they kind of made up by the early church, the results of a mixture of speculation and Chinese whispers after the time of Jesus? Not at all. Like the rest of the Apostles' Creed, these phrases, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, are expressing truths that go back to the inspired word of God. In other words, they're summarising what is there in Scripture. And our passage from Matthew is a good example of this. I, I chose Matthew rather than Luke, because I thought we've seen quite a bit of Luke over the last four or five months. But what struck me as I read the Matthew passage was that although it comes from a very different source to Luke, it's the Christmas story very much through Joseph's eyes rather than Mary's eyes, it's still consistent with the account in Luke and indeed elsewhere in the New Testament. And it seems to me there are four points that are emphasised here in Matthew's Gospel uh, that are actually common to Luke and and all the other uh, New Testament. First point, Joseph and Mary did not have sexual relations before the birth of Jesus. It's there in verses 18, 23 and 25. uh, The baby they had was not conceived in the normal way. Point number one. Point number two, the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's said in verse 18, through the Holy Spirit, and verse 20, uh, verse 20 itself, uh, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. To be very clear, it was not Joseph's sperm that impregnated the egg, but it was the miraculous work of God through the Holy Spirit. That is difficult to understand. Let's be clear, it was difficult to understand then, because they knew then how babies were made. But it could not be clearer in Scripture that the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit, by the work of God himself, in a miraculous act. Point number three, all this was part of God's plan. Uh, See the words of the angel in verse 21, and the words of Matthew himself in verse 22, all this took to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The conception and the birth of Jesus was not an accident, but the planned act of God. And fourth, despite the miraculous nature of the conception of Jesus, the birth of Jesus was a normal one. There is nothing in verse 25 or anywhere else in scripture that gives rise to any suggestion other than Jesus was born in a normal way, the way babies are born today. Uh, What the Apostles' Creed is does is is it gives expression to these truths about Jesus. It's a summary of the biblical revelation about the way Jesus entered the world. And I'm so doing it emphasizes the divinity of Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit and his humanity born of the Virgin Mary. And it therefore points to the biblical truth that in Jesus we see somebody who was fully God and fully man. And that is pretty mind-blowing stuff. I mean, not the fully man bit. We get what it means to be fully man. That's what we are. 
But the idea that in Jesus, God was fully present in our world, taking flesh and being among us, it is an amazing truth. It, in a sense, it's wasted on Christmas. Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, Christmas was so busy with angels and tinsel and carols that the wonder of it all can get lost. But it's a sensational claim. As the theologian Wayne Gruden puts it, it is by far the most amazing claim of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery of all the universe. So these phrases in the Apostles' Creed, they're a cause, I think, of wonder that the God was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But I want us to go further this morning and ask, what difference to us does it make to believe in the God who took flesh in his son Jesus Christ? Why does it matter? Why did it have to happen? The reasons are many. We could think about why it matters for our salvation. In his great book, Cafe Theology, that's on the bookstore and really impacts so much of what we're doing in this teaching series, Michael Lloyd shows why Jesus had to be both God and man for us to be saved. If he'd been just one or the other, the cross would not have had the impact it had. But I want to think about the question of why all this matters in a slightly different way this morning. I want us to think about what Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary tells us about God. What God is being revealed here. And in light of life to the full next year, what is the good news? What are we being told about what life is? And in order to explore these questions, I want you to pick up just three words from Matthew chapter 1, two of which are explicitly picked up on in the Apostles' Creed, and the other is implied. And say, what do those words show us about God? Those three words are conceived, born, and Emmanuel. And I think they help us think about God in the womb, God as a baby, and God as a man. The first word I want us to stay with is that word conceived. Because that locates us in a very specific moment in time. Actually, it's quite important to get the distinction right. I remember a head teacher speaking of a child. She was giving the words out. and She said, oh, here's a child I know very well. In fact, I know her parents very well. I was actually with them on the night this child was conceived. think about it for a moment and I don't think she meant that um, but the Apostles' Creed says it's quite important to get it right there the Apostles' Creed says on the basis of Matthew's Gospel that the divine activity with Jesus started at conception not at birth the real miracle moment if you like is not Christmas but nine months previously 
when Mary received the life of God into her womb as an egg was fertilized by God himself. From that moment, the life of God was present in Mary, growing as any baby does from a few cells into a human form. For nine months, God was in Mary's womb. It's a breathtaking thought. God in the womb. This week I came across a stunning sonnet by the poet John Donne in which he meditates on this truth. One line sums it up for me. It's this, addressed to the Virgin Mary, where he writes, Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. That provokes me to silent wonder. But it also makes me think more carefully about something else. And that is when human life really starts. It's a question where there are different views out there and much emotion around it. But the view of the scriptures and the Apostles' Creed is that the divine life of Jesus started not at 12 weeks or 24 weeks or at birth, but at conception. God was in the womb from that moment. And this is just one of the reasons, one of the most powerful, I think, that most Christians of all traditions hold to a view that human life starts at conception. And that therefore God's involvement in and care for human life extends to fetal life. That is life in the womb. Why would it not when his own involvement in Jesus' life started at this point. God's care for life in the womb is patterned on his own incarnation. God's care for life in the womb is patterned on his own incarnation. And I know that truth is a huge comfort to parents who have suffered the pain of losing a child during pregnancy. It has been my task, but also my privilege, to take funerals for babies who have died in the womb. And one of the things I always speak about during those services is that that child had a life in the womb, a life known for and cared for by God. And I know that is a great comfort to bereaved parents and a wider family, that God's care for human life extended to them. But sadly, what is a comfort to many is also a challenge to the view that care for fetal life should only start at a certain point and that before that point, a life may be terminated by abortion. God's care for human life, patterned on his own incarnation, extends to lives in the womb and he is grieved when those lives are cut short. It is a painful tragedy that around one in five viable pregnancies in this country are terminated. And it's a pain that I know extends to all those people involved. It is a belief in a God who took flesh in the womb that motivates many Christians to care for women who are considering an abortion or who have had an abortion to offer them counselling and support. 
The website Care Confidential is a great resource that links the various agencies working in that area. But let me say something if abortion has affected you or your family. I am not in a position to speak judgment on you or anybody. The world is not divided into two groups of people, guilty and not guilty. We are all guilty. It is divided, rather, into the forgiven and the unforgiven. For the God who took flesh in the womb is the God who sent the same Son to die for your sins and for mine, so that our public sins and our hidden sins might be forgiven. What is life? Seeing God in the womb suggests to me it is something more precious, more mysterious than we often allow. The second word I want us to stay with is the word baby. Uh, so the word born in the narrative, and here we think of God as a baby. We know today that there was nothing in the Bible to suggest that Jesus had anything other than normal birth, or indeed life as a baby. Like every child, he had to learn how to feed. Despite what the carol away in a manger says, he cried. And he needed care and love as any baby does. It is clear that Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, loved him very much. They went to great lengths to protect him from Herod and then find him when he was lost in Jerusalem. But just think with me for a moment about the choice that God made to come to earth as a human baby, a vulnerable, dependent baby, who, as any of us who are parents will know, could do nothing for himself. I've never forgotten what the uh, obstetrician John Wyatt said when he came to speak here a number of years ago. He said that in Jesus, God allowed his bottom to be wiped. It's a shocking phrase in one sense, but it's true. It's what it means to say that we believe in Jesus who was born of Mary. Contrast that with the gods of the ancient world who were worshipped as figures of strength and might impervious to human brokenness and human need. And then look back to Jesus, God in a manger. But here's the thing to grasp. When God was a baby, when Jesus was a baby, he wasn't any less God. And God didn't see infancy as an unfortunate stage to be made through. He could have created Jesus as a 30-year-old, just wandered into Galilee. But he didn't. Because in Jesus the baby, God in the manger, God was showing humanity something important about itself. And that is this. Dependency is part of what it means to be human. Dependency is part of what it means to be human. John Wyatt writes of how we begin our lives dependent on others and will most likely end them in a similar fashion. And he says, This is not a terrible, degrading, inhuman reality. It's part of the design. It is an integral part of the narrative of a person's life. He then quotes the words of the theologian Gilbert Mylander, who says, We are dependent beings 
and to think otherwise, to make independence our project, however sincerely, is to live a lie, to fly in the face of reality. I would add, it flies in the face of the creed. For Jesus, born of Mary, God as a baby, helps us see our lives differently, not as a headlong dash for independence and personal autonomy, but as lives where we need each other and depend on each other. For in that dependence, love takes place. And that is what life is really about. I remember soon after I became a Christian reading a book by the Canadian writer Jean Vanier, who was founder of the Lash Communities, where, to use a term he uses, able-bodied and disabled people live in community. And I've never forgotten at that moment when I was still trying to get my theology right, I've never forgotten the way in which Jean started to live with these people, aware of how much they were dependent on him but coming to realise that he needed them just as much and how God worked in that space of interdependence together. In Jesus, born of Mary, we see God honouring dependence. God, as a baby, shows how we are made. Conceived, God in the womb. Born, God as a baby. The third word I want us to stay with is the word Emmanuel, there in verse 23. Matthew tells us what it means. It means God with us. And the thing I want us to think about is this. Jesus, who was born of Mary, did not remain a baby. He grew up. He learned how to walk, to talk Aramaic, to read, to play, to work with wood, to be a son and a brother. In Jesus, God was experiencing the progress of life from the inside. God was walking the streets of Nazareth. Next week, we'll see where that growing up took Jesus, to suffering and a death that was worse than could be imagined. But let us just note for today the reality that in Jesus, God was coming to be among his people. Let us wonder that God did not remain distant from the world he had made, but entered it in his son Jesus. Let us register the commitment that led God to take human form and experience life from the inside. Emmanuel, God with us. What dignity that gives us as human beings. Yes, as we saw two weeks ago, we are all made in God's image and given a unique role in God's creation. But how much more wonderful the eternal God became one with us and walked with us. He loved us so much that he came to be among us. I remember asking a friend of mine at university what his favourite verse of the Bible was. And he said to me straight away, John 1.14, It means this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He said, that says everything for me. That the God who is beyond all time became one with us. But that isn't all. God's plan didn't end there. He didn't become man simply to be with us. His plan was also to save us. That's why Joseph was told two names, Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, God saves. The incarnation was the start of that decisive chapter in human history, but the climax came on a hilltop outside Jerusalem 30 years later. 
There'll be more of that in weeks to come. But let us rejoice today that God became one with man so that man might become one with God. Conceived God in the womb. Born God as a baby. Emmanuel, God as a man and God with us. Let me just give us three questions to think about as we take away this morning. First of all, will we praise the God who in Jesus entered the womb of Mary? And will you also praise God who was caring for your life from before you were born? Will you say with the psalmist, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. Second, will you see in Jesus God as a baby, a pointer towards the importance of dependency? Think about the people on whom you depend and who depend on you. Those are not relationships of weakness. They are the pattern of God himself. So will you see and seek God at work in those spaces? Our task is not to be self-sufficient. Our calling is to model the vulnerability and dependence that God showed in the baby Jesus. And third, will you see in Jesus God the man, evidence that God is so committed to you that he became like you, so that in his plan you might become like him. Emmanuel, God with us, so that we can be with God. That is the God we can know in Jesus Christ. That is his aim for your life. If you doubt whether God is interested in you or bothered with you, know this. He loved you so much that he sent his son to the mess of this world so that you could have a relationship with him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Those words of Wayne Grudem again. The most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in the universe. Amen.